NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. NFR Extra, episode 57. Some cowgirls grow up in the rodeo industry while others were destined to live it. And when you hear the term blue-collar millionaire, a lot comes to mind, especially with the guests that we have on NFR Extra today. The names Kiss Kiss, Bang Bang, Babe on the Chase, and Highway 12 are household names in the rodeo industry. Plenty of championships have been produced on the backs of these animals, along with many others involved with these two great guests. 13-time NFR qualifier and two-time world champion Brittany Posey Tanazi talks about her successful horse program as she's managing her family and her rodeo schedule during this pandemic. We discuss her wins at San Angelo and San Antonio on two different horses, and of course, words of advice to grow in the rodeo industry. Bucking bull owner, cowgirl, horse trainer, and rancher Mesa Pate discusses getting involved in bull riding in the bucking bull industry as well as her family bloodline and rodeo and going back to that great bull Highway 12. This is Braglin's Bull, the rodeo news of the week. PRCA stat of the week. Eight is the number of steer ropers who qualified for both the 2019 National Final Steer Roping and the 2020 National Circuit Final Steer Roping. Four-time world champion Scott Schnedeker leads at the NCFSR. Placing second in round one with a 12.4, third in round two with an 11.2, tied for third in round three with a 10.5, second in round four with a 9.4 second run to lead the average by 10.4 seconds with 43.5 on forehead. Clayton Seller captures Spanish Fork's Extreme Bull victory with a 90-point ride on Frontier Rodeo's Trophy Rack. Let's recap our leaders in the standing as of July 21st, 2020. Tuff Cooper, all-around, Tim O'Connell, bareback, Matt Reeves, steer wrestling, Luke Brown and Joseph Harrison, team roping, Wyatt Casper, saddle bronc, Shad Mayfield, tie-down roping, Brittany Posey-Tanazi, barrel racing, Sage Kimsey, bull riding. Each year at Cowboy Christmas, more than a quarter million country western shoppers mingle with NFR contestants, Flint Rasmussen, and the best junior cowboys and cowgirls in the world. There's no place in sports where your rodeo heroes find time to meet and greet their fans 9 to 5 every day. Cowboy Christmas. It's shopping, live music, rodeo, and so much more. Book your reservations and find out more at NFRExperience.com. Cowboy Christmas. It's all here. Do you need a dose of social, a dash of insider info? Then the National Finals Rodeo Social Network is set up just for you. Get updates, insight, unique content, and much more on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. You can find us at Las Vegas NFR. And be sure to use hashtag WranglerNFR on your posts and tweets. There's something for all rodeo fans. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I'm Doreen Wintemute, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Pretty Posey Tanazi is a self-proclaimed barrel racing addict. 
She first gained professional status when she was 18 years old, making her first national finals rodeo in 2003 and was the first WPRE rookie to qualify for the NFR at number one in the world standings. She has gone on to qualify for the NFR 13 times, winning two NFR average titles and two WPRA world championships. Plus, she's a multiple futurity champion. CNBC recognized Tanazi as one of their blue-collar millionaires for her hard work in breeding and training horses and barrel racing. We find out why great horses are the cornerstone of her program. Welcome to NFR Extra, Brittany Posey Tanazi. Hi, glad to be here. Hey, thank you. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, you know we're we've been bringing on a lot of. Well, actually, you know we have not had. Uh, Brylan, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I don't think we've had too many barrel racers on this summer during this pandemic. Is that right? We have only had, I believe, one, maybe two over yeah. the time period of NFR Extra. So we're pretty excited for this. Wow. I thought it was a lot more. Wow. I feel bad. My, 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 my <laughs> bad. Well, either way, Brittany, how are you dealing with things going on right now? You know, there's a lot of kind of, this has been a roller coaster ride for just about everybody in the rodeo business or the planet for that matter. Well, at the beginning, you know, it was pretty frustrating because I was in the last set that, that didn't get to go to Houston. And, um, you know, Houston is a huge payday for us as far as people that make a living um, rodeoing. And, you know, me and my husband both both rodeo, and that is our main source of income. So, you know, we were really bummed. And um, we had just bought a new place in Lampasas. It's a, well, it's about a year now. And so, you know, after we got over the initial shock, uh, we got to do a lot of things around our place that we wouldn't normally get to do. Um, I also train futurity colts. And so uh, where my three-year-olds are a little bit behind when I start out the new year, I've been able to ride those. And and I think that I'm going to be, you know, pretty prepared for next year uh, because of the pandemic. And then when things did start opening up a little bit where they weren't having rodeos, they were still having jackpots and barrel races. So luckily us, you know, we're not, we're not uh rust events. So we both got to start competing at jackpots and, and try to make some money. So, you know, after the first initial shock, it was like, okay, well, we're just going to have to, you know, retrain our focus and and try to make money different ways so we're just glad to be back rodeoing it's just refreshing that the rodeo business has been going and oddly this has been bizarro for everybody the way it's kind of put together but it's refreshing to fire up cowboy channel or see on social media and that's a beautiful part about today right like if we had if we had this to 20 years ago it would be rough right there wouldn't be a lot of outlets to see what's going on but because of social media and everything you know i, I, I get to keep tabs on you and many other contestants, uh, wherever, who's sharing, wherever. When did the rodeo business start for you? At what age? Well, I am not from a rodeo family. Um, my parents, but my dad, he kind of, you know, like rode a little bit when he was younger, but obviously by the time me and my sister came along, um, he was full-fledged into his old silk business. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she, to this day, is still scared of horses. Uh, so basically, uh, I begged and begged and begged until finally they figured they better get me a horse or I wasn't going to give up. And um, so I didn't start riding competitively till I was like 12 or 13. Um, 
you know, where most, most people you see grow up, like my husband, I mean, his grandpa team wrote, his uncle is an NFR qualifier, you know, we have completely opposite stories. And um, I, we started off in like little local 4-H and decide, I decided that I did not want to do Western Pleasure or Halter, any of those things. I wanted to go fast. So uh, my dad kind of had some friends that were, did, you know, some local rodeo stuff and they kind of helped us get our first horse and uh, just kind of progressed from there. And, and I think that my parents probably thought at some point, well, she's going to give this up. You know, it's not going to we're not going to have to always do this. We're not going to go every weekend to a junior high school rodeo. And, and uh, I think then finally, by the time I got to the end of my high school career, they're like, okay, she's not giving up. We're just going to have to go along with this. So um, yeah, it's just, it, it was me just having a very determined personality and, and wanting to do it so badly that I just wasn't going to give up. The investment side, how was that worked out with your family on that side, you know, come around high school time, right? When it started kind of really getting way more expensive to compete. By the time I get got into high school, um, I had a horse that was phenomenal and I, I was winning every high, like, I think I'm the only still to this day, the only competitor that had won every high school rodeo in the barrel race. So I won every high school rodeo. Uh, I, was you know going to state you know and basically at that stage I was paying for my I was paying my way um you know we we ended up finding this horse for fairly cheap and nobody thought he was anything and and it ended up just clicking for me and that horse and that's actually the horse that I took to uh my first NFR and he uh I, I I did go to school. I had enough scholarships that I had school paid for at Texas A&M for the first two semesters. And while I was going to school, I was going to amateur rodeos. I was going to pro rodeos. Uh, I was also going to the college rodeos. And I was winning enough that I was paying my way. And um, it, you know, they definitely helped me out, truck, trailer, you know, but it was also refreshing for them to be like, you know, well, we can't really tell her no because she's paying for it. <laughs> so um, it, it, you know, there, the, the next year when my horse got hurt, it didn't really go quite as well then, but um, I, I ended up, I made the finals in 03. I skipped 04. I ended up like 17th and then 05, you know, I made, I, that's when I started the long run. I think I made it like the next nine years or so, or seven or eight years. I can't remember, but um, you know, they never really had to, for one, they never really had to push me. They never had to be like, okay, you, you know, you need to keep going. Or I was just so self-motivated that they were, they were just kind of hanging back and was like, well, we're here to support you, but you don't really need us. So go on, you know, do what you need to do type thing. Talk I don't think they were very impressed that I quit going to school after two semesters. I don't think they were real super happy about that. But uh, then when I made the finals the following year, then they kind of backed off. Yeah, it seems to pay it off pretty well now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talking a little bit about horsepower and the horses that you've had throughout the last few years, let alone then, 
Could you tell us a little bit about your horse program? Right now, I know you're running, I believe it's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and what a horse. Well, uh, so in, in whenever I started this whole deal, you know, that first rodeoed and my horse got hurt. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I do not want to be, for one, I don't want to be the one horse wonder. For two, I want to keep doing this. This is too much fun. You know, I love it. it I don't want to stop. So I quickly realized I have to figure out a way to stay in the rodeo business and I have to figure out how to do it because I can't afford to buy $100,000 horses. And even if you can afford to buy $100,000 horses, they're not always just readily available. I mean, it is not easy to go try to buy somebody's horse to make the NFR. So I, I was like, I've got to figure out how I can do this myself. And, you know, I had... I had a lot of luck. Um, I purchased a mare from Charmaine. Her name is Stricken Six Babe. I purchased her as a brood mare. And um, I liked her because she was bred like Stitch, the horse I was running at the time. And she's kind of the foundation of, um, of my program. Um, she, her babies have won, you know, over 500,000. I uh, ran her, her offspring last year at the NFR. I'm a famous babe and babe on the chase. And, um, Mona is also a very important part of my program. Um, she actually came, Judd Little and I, he had a mare that I liked at the time. Her name was French Cover Girl. And uh, he's like, let's do some embryo swapping. So basically, I got got uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from an embryo swap. So like I said, I mean, I've made some good decisions, but I've had some really good luck to go along with it to get these horses uh, in my possession. and. Now it's just really cool because we have our own stallion. His name's the guy with proof and um, we have all these incredible mares and I just can't wait to start being able to uh, run babies out of them and, and keep kind of keep it going. So uh, we've in the horse industry, especially in the barrel industry, we've come to realize that, you know, that, that mare is super important as far as raising a, a winning baby. And I think that I have an incredible, uh, a stockpile of mares at the moment. So we're just, we're, we're really excited about getting our, our breeding program going. Working with all of the ones that are starting to come out of your breeding program, are there a few colts and fillies that you found you just really like that cross? Well, I mean, I love Mona's babies. Um, I'm, her first one is three years old and I'm going to fraternity it next year. And Bona is kiss, kiss, bang, bang for, for everybody who doesn't know, but, um, her, I'm super excited. She has an epic leader and a trace days baby. And I haven't, they're not old enough to ride yet, but I mean, her babies are, are, are really impressive to us. And we're, we're super excited to be able to ride those. And, um, actually I, in, oh, 17, when I'm 17, 18, when I made the finals, uh, I rode a mare. Her name is Steel Magnolias. And she was the first horse that I raised off of uh, from our from our program. And I rode her at the NFR. And now I am riding her colt uh, at the Futurities this year. So it's really cool. It takes a really long time, but it is really cool how how uh, I've gotten to ride the mothers, and now I'm getting to ride the offspring, and how much they are alike. I could only imagine how exciting that really is just to see them grow and develop part of developing yeah, and you know, it's a tough business too it's it's a lot of money involved a lot of heartbreak uh babies like to 
find a place to die all the time. They're always getting into something. It's always one thing after another. So it takes a lot just to get them to be able to, uh, to run, you know, and, and that's a feat in itself. Absolutely. When we talk about developing, one of the things that over time you started to develop as well as a breeding program is a line of bits and saddles. Could you highlight a little bit on how yeah, those are different? So, uh, well, I actually have known the people at Double J. I mean, they, they, they live in Yoakum, which is about 30 miles from Victoria. So I've known them for a long time. Grew up, basically, uh, John DeBoard is the owner. Uh, his kids are a little bit older than me, but we still kind of grew up together at the junior rodeos and stuff. And actually, uh, I rented a place from uh, his son in college and um, at Texas A&M. And uh, when I started winning, Josh, which is, which is John's son, was like, Hey, we, we, you know, told his dad, we need to get Brittany in a saddle. You know, she's going to the pro rodeos and I think she's going to do good. And so I went down to the shop and they uh, fitted me and my horse for a Charmaine. And that's what I rode my whole rookie year. And, um, you know, at the, at the end of that, John approached me and he's like, Hey, I'd like to do a saddle line with you, which is crazy. I don't know why he wanted to do a saddle line with me. I was just a rookie. Didn't know what I was doing, you know, kind of just, it was a shooting the dark for him. And I said, yeah, there's a few things I want to change. I want to hire, I want to raise the cannel and I want to hire uh, the swells and make them a little shorter. So we made some adjustments and that was the saddle that I rode at my first NFR. And um, man, it is just blown up like crazy. The saddles are awesome. They do an incredible job. Uh, they have, I mean, they stand behind their work. I, I couldn't even ask, I could not ask for a better partnership than with the DeBoards and Double J. Brittany, there is no doubt you were destined to succeed in the rodeo business. Let's pause for a little break, though. And when we come back, we'll talk about the challenges she faced to win San Antonio and San Angelo and what it takes to make it in the rodeo industry. In 2020, more than 7,000 kids will compete for the coveted 750 spots at the Junior World Finals in Las Vegas, presented by Yeti. Each qualifier will go head-to-head for more than a half a million dollars in a championship buckle in the biggest rodeo youth event in the country. This could be the first stop on the road to a pro rodeo card and a gold buckle in Vegas. Find out how your son or daughter can earn the right to compete against the best at the Junior World Finals, presented by Yeti. Hi, I'm Fred Whitfield, eight-time world champion, and this is NFR Extra. We're hanging out with two-time world champ Brittany Tanazi. Brittany manages her busy rodeo life with her husband, NFR qualifier Garrett Tanazi. So, Brittany, with all of the stuff that you've got going on with your horse program, with the saddles, with your family, and still competing, how do you manage all of that? <laughs> well, uh, it's tough. It is difficult, especially since uh, we did live in Victoria, where I my parents both live, and so that made things a little bit easier. But we we moved to Lampasas. Uh, we wanted to be more centrally located. Plus, we have you know over 50 head horses, and um, we were on about 40 acres, and now we're about now we're on 300 acres. So we needed to make a move, and you know it. I could not do it without my husband. He is an amazing dad. He he can do whatever I can do with Tinley, he can do with Tinley as well. I mean, if he needed to take her for a week while I went and rodeoed or vice versa, it, we're just a total 50% partnership. And, and um, 
we we do whatever it takes to make it work and we do have you know the help of our our parents and um garrett's mom she always takes tinley the week of the fourth of july so that she doesn't have to you know sit in a truck but um and, and we plan out you know i ride in the morning and then he might rope in the afternoon and then we just switch off and um we have a girl from australia her name is courtney hallam and and she helps us and she's incredible help we couldn't do it without her and um you know we just we just do what it just we have to do what it takes i mean i'm sure tenley has to ride in the truck a little bit more than what what any three-year-old would want to have to but she seems to love it and now we're taking her pony with us and she rides around and um, we just do it as a family and, and I, I, it's great. Like I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. So now that you're packing a pony as well, how many horses do you usually carry with you? <laughs> well, um, we usually like Garrett usually takes two head horses. I usually take two barrel horses and then leave the spot open for the pony. And, you know, sometimes we, sometimes we don't get to take the pony. So she has to ride one of the big horses, but, um, you know, it, 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 I'm sure it will get a little bit harder the older she gets when she starts wanting to um, go to barrel races and go to junior rodeos and stuff. And, and we'll have to change up our schedule and we'll have to change up what we do, but now it's, it's really good. And we have a motor home that we travel in and um, you know, it, it's trying to make it family fun for everybody. And, Basically, like I said, we just have to do what it takes to make it work. I mean, we don't really rodeo. I mean, we, at the end of the day, we love rodeo, but it's also our occupation. So, you know, it's not like we're doing it just to have fun. We're also doing it to make money and keep keep everything going. So on a typical year, uh, how many rodeos do you hit? Well, so we have 100 rodeo uh, limits. And I don't think I've ever gotten to a hundred rodeos. And then Garrett has like a 65 rodeo limit. So, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll usually go to more than him. So 65, 75, somewhere right there. And then I also do the futurity. So I usually go to five or six futurity events a year. Um, I mean, we're going somewhere every weekend. And uh, last week, uh, I, my horses were had a few little issues. So I turned out of the rodeos and, Garrett went to him and I stayed home for the week and I was like man this is so odd to be in one spot for an entire week you know and um but the the pandemic it's 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 been hard on it's been hard on us but it's been hard on a lot of people too and it, it it sucks because a lot of our big paying rodeos have had to cancel and I know they don't want to cancel but I mean it's just how it is I mean they can't make the numbers work or they can't get their governors to let them have crowds and, you know, but it has been really good for our family too, to kind of just take a break, take a step back, um, enjoy each other as far as like getting a lot of stuff done around our house. And, you know, there's been, there's been pros and cons and, you know, basically we all just have really like go with the flow attitudes and, and that's how we make it work with the negative aspect of Corona, now you've got more family time, more time with young horses and fraternities and just a little bit different uh, view than what your typical extraordinarily busy schedule would be. Exactly. We just kind of had to refocus and, and try to make a living kind of a different way for a while. And, you know, it makes me really nervous. I mean, obviously about the NFR, I mean, I know we're on 
a Las Vegas event podcast right here and and everything but I mean we're we're worried I mean we are this is definitely sticking in the back of our minds up is there going to be an NFR I mean the PRCA says they're going to crown world champions but at the end of the day yeah we all want to win a world title but we also all want to go you know run at that money that that's at Vegas because I mean that's how we how we feed ourselves for the rest of the year you know and and it's scary it's really scary. Trust me. I wish we had a crystal ball just for so many things. Right. And you know, but for, Hey, for what you're doing, something's working because, uh, as I understand (laughs) it, you're sitting here at number one. You know, and I mean, you can even push that a little further and just say, are they going to have a Denver next year? Are they going to have a San Antonio next year? You know, was the impact of, you know, this year, yes, we had a big impact, but we're still getting a rodeo, but are we even going to have a winter season next year? And I mean, I know those are all questions that no one can answer and it's scary to all of us, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. No doubt about it. Hey, but something's working for you. Cause if I'm looking at the standings, right, <laughs> you seem to be doing okay right now. Yeah. Yeah. But fortunately I had a very good winter and um, it's, it's been nice to just kind of hang back because I've had, my horses have had a few injuries um, actually the Mona kiss, kiss, bang, bang, just had to have uh, surgery on her ankles. So she'll be out for the rest of the year. And um, so I, I'm not complaining too much about it being a light year because I don't really have the horsepower for the summer that I usually do. Let's go back. You brought up the winter. And once again, you, you had a pretty good winter as well. Let's talk two two nice big rodeos, San Angelo and San Antonio, from what I understand, you won one of one of those two. You know, you didn't. It wasn't the same for each rodeo. How did that? How did you? How did you come out on top with both those horses there for those rodeos? Well, both of those horses we raised and trained. Uh, one is Katniss, and then the other one is Birdie. And I had, I had a uh, Birdie's always kind of been just hit or miss as far as me winning on her, and I've won some really big things on her, and then we've had some real big disappointments and, and Katniss is young. She's only uh, seven. And, uh, she, uh, I, I ran her San Angelo on, and then I ran her in the first few rounds at San Antonio and had total confidence that I was going to run her in the semifinals in the final. Well, she came up lame and, um, I had to jump on birdie and I was not too confident about how, the situation was going to end and um, Birdie just stepped up to the plate and we, uh, we got it done. So unfortunate, you know, for, for the injury, but it's good that you've raised such a great team that you have these assets that you can kind of lean on. And obviously I know that a lot of athletes don't, don't have that opportunity and clearly it's working. It was very nice to have the option to be able to switch back and forth. And, and now um, with Mona out, or ankle surgery till probably the end of the year. Um, I have Birdie and Katniss, and we're going to finish out the year and hope we finish it out strong. Yeah. So speaking of that, what how how does the rest of the year look for you closing out? What how many more rodeos are you looking at doing? Or you know, obviously to what you can and what what's what's going to be allowed. Right. To. Well, uh, so my husband he's about nine thousand out of the top fifteen right now, so he's still got you know a really good shot of of making NFR. So um, basically, I am just, I'm just at his mercy. Wherever he wants to go or whatever he wants to do, that's what we're doing. So um, I feel like at this point, with the rodeos we have left, that 
I am, you know, if, if we do have an NFR that I am already qualified for it. So um, I'm basically going to rodeo just to, to what he needs to go to and where he needs to go so that hopefully he can get in as well. So not only number one in the world, but make sure that he listens to this podcast so that he knows that you have for sure the wife of the year award for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, he, he deserves to be there. He's had, he's had a great, he had a good winner and you know he's qualified for the finals twice before as well. And um, we're just, you know, it'd be awesome for us to both be there and, and uh, that's that's our main goal right now. Brittany, uh, I want to thank you for coming to the show. But before we let you go, do you have any words of advice that you could share with those that are wanting to grow in this industry? And obviously, there's a lot that are not, you know, they're not part of a rodeo family like yourselves. Is there any advice right, you want to throw out there right. for people? Well, yeah, and you know, it sounds so cliche about, you know, never giving up or, you know, being determined. But that's what it takes. I mean, I did not, this was not handed to me. This was not, um, I didn't come from the rodeo family. I had no direction. I mean, basically my dad was like, Hey, there's three barrels. I know which way you go around them, but we're going to have to figure the rest of this out, you know, and (laughs) they're, if you put the right people in your corner and you stay focused, you stay determined, um, you know, and you, and you're very realistic also about, about your writing and your goals and, um, you know, don't go down some rabbit hole that's unrealistic about, you know, what you can and can't accomplish. I, I feel like you can accomplish anything. Um, and I'm proof of that. I mean, I, my parents, when, when I started and I went to my very first barrel race, we didn't even own a horse trailer. Uh, me and my dad rode my horse to it. Luckily, it wasn't far, but but we still we didn't have a trailer, so um, you know just a long a long warm up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we were really warmed up by the time we got there for sure. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, determination and perseverance will will get you further than anything. So I don't want anybody to give up just because they think that you know they don't have the right truck or the right trailer or you know the the right things because um those are just things so um you know getting getting in with the correct people to help you and getting mounted and you know putting in your time those are all things that that can get you where you need to go that's good advice and yeah seeking out mentors right people that can point in the right direction or or you're you're never gonna go wrong definitely that they'll give you the caring advice and guidance that you need so yeah, and you know, if you feel, I mean, I don't know anybody in in the barrel racing industry that if a young girl comes up to them and and shows, you know, obviously you have to just show you have to show effort first. It's not something that you're just going to get handed. So you know, if you put enough effort, just like the girl that works for me, um, she's from Australia, and I mean, she she works her her tail off every day, and I can see she wants it. So me helping her, I have no limit on to how much I'm going to help her because I can see her, her want and her drive. And, you know, I feel like anybody in the industry, if they see that will feel the same way I do. Well, that's good stuff, Brittany. Thank you. I'm good. I, Rylan, Steve, you got anything for Brittany? I just really appreciate you taking the time to join us today and share a little bit about your story and how important it is. Well, I, uh, I'm thankful you guys had me on and um, I hope that we can all laugh at this in December and be like, oh, what pandemic? 
I, I, I hope that I don't think that's going to happen, but I hope I hope we can all just laugh at this and and uh, be glad that it's over and and go on with with the with NFR. So I fully agree with you. I want to be in Vegas <laughs> just as much as everybody else. All right. Well, hopefully we can make this happen. And best of luck to your husband, and and hopefully he gets that nine thousand, and and both of you guys can compete there, and be a great way to end the end the year. Yes, it would be. It would be a great way to end a crazy year for sure. Right. Well, thank you, Brittany. Thank you, guys. Old son, you know what time it is. Broncs are loaded, bulls are sorted. That heathen kid two rows down has his cotton candy. Bareback riders are pulled. The national anthem's over. It's rodeo time. But there's one thing left to be done. That's the grand entry. Now usually it's a time whenever the whole town gets to showcase their ponies. They came to enjoy the rodeo. They're gonna wave to the crowd. Contestants get to try out the ground and warm up their horses. But there's one rodeo where it'll give you goosebumps just like you're about to ride. Just like you're about to nod for 90, old son. This grand entry is at the National Finals Rodeo. Cowboys and barrel racers rode into Las Vegas last December and left $10 million richer. The chase for 2020 has already begun, and all champions are hungry for gold. Be sure to follow your favorite Cowboys, barrel racers, and local rodeos all season long. It all leads to one place, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Learn more at NFRExperience.com. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, this is George Taylor, CEO of the PRCA, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Mesa Pate has worked hard to establish herself in the bucking bull industry. At the age of 18, she was hauling her top bull, Highway 12, from Texas to Colorado and Florida, Nashville, North Carolina, and Illinois. Mesa made a name for herself in the world of bucking bulls at the 2010 PBR Finals in Las Vegas when Highway 12 was one of eight contenders for Bucking Bull of the Year. She shares with us why she's an advocate for animal welfare and is involved in creating a healthy environment for livestock and promoting the right image for the livestock industry. Bucking Bull owner, horse trainer, and rancher, she does it all. Mesa Pate, welcome to NFR Extra. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. You're getting to spend some time up there in God's country with your parents, huh? I am. Yeah, I I actually I let's see. I left uh I think I left Tuesday morning uh with six head of horses from Oklahoma 
and I had a blowout by Wakini, Kansas. And then I think I set a record for blown tires on the way up here. So it was kind of a long trip, but I made it. That's all that matters. Jeez. Uh, your folks, they're running some cattle up there then? Yeah. So they are, they're on a place, it's called the 63 Ranch uh, outside of Livingston. And they, it was an old guest ranch and some friends of ours bought it and they're, they're running some yearlings and it's, it's one of the most breathtaking places I've probably ever been to. Um, I grew up in Montana and, but I never, I don't know how many places I've seen that are this pretty. So it's been pretty, pretty neat to come and spend some time. I I hadn't been here besides around Christmas time, uh, to see it all. And it's, yeah, they got a good spot. They got a good deal going. That's awesome. Good. This is the, the right time of year to beat the sooner heat and get up in God's country for a little while. Oh, I'm telling you, I've been trying to get some horses ready for the red cow horse maturity and some horse shows. And I think they're, they're res, uh, relieved to be out of the humidity as I am. So Nice. Now, before we got uh, started, I'm sure that we'll, we'll revisit some of this information, but you were talking about Highway 12 and kind of how he came into the program somewhat on his own. Um, nowadays with the fraternity of these young bulls, what is the biggest difference that you see in developing these bulls? You know, at this, this time is so crazy for the fraternity and the aged event game. Uh, there are so many good, there's so many good cattle out there. Uh, and I, I attribute that to genetics and, and also just the nutrition and the, what people are doing um, at home just to prepare these, these animals. But, you know, we're kind of, we're probably 10 generations in uh, roughly on the, our ABBI registry. And I think every year people are being so proactive about and responsible with the breeding of, of these cattle that it's just getting so dialed in. And, and not only are they breeding them, uh, to buck, but they're really breeding them also to physically stay together and be ranker sooner. And it's, it's just pretty amazing. You know, you buck a set of calves at home and you have one you think can win at a fraternity. He, he's probably going to place. And if you, uh, you think he's going to place, he's probably not even going to get a check. So when you are deciding what to enter these aged events, you've got to, you got to really have your hammer cocked and, and know you you're, uh, you got something that can compete because it's, it's getting so tough. And, and I think it's pretty cool, too, because at one time, the fraternity deal was really, you know, the ones that won were the little kind of souped up spinners, but they'd never, they never made it past the fraternity deal. Um, like when the plumbers were really popular and that's what was really winning that stuff, uh, they never, you never saw them again after their two-year-old year. And now how they're breeding these things, they're breeding some size and some leg and some kind of up and down back in them. And they're, and they're letting the ones that, that buck a little bit you know, maybe go out a little farther or, or not right. They're not kind of cookie cutter right in the gate type fraternity calves. They're letting them win. And that's, uh, that's carrying over to making, making actual buck and bulls. And I think that's pretty, pretty dang cool that our uh, industry is, is kind of upholding the integrity of what the breed and, and what it's for and what, you know, these are, these are buck and bulls. It's, it doesn't matter that they're good fraternity calves. They gotta, they can't just make fraternity calves anymore. They gotta make buck and bulls too. So how many trips do you put on these calves or like kind of give us the, a little bit of the background of like what you do for developing these calves for the fraternity before you enter them up and start taking them? Yeah. So I, uh, we start our calves and when I say we, it's, I, I am 
with HD Page and so DNH cattle. And so I have my cows and then I also work for them and um, we kind of do things together. So uh, we start our calves, we started them in March this year, our yearlings, which we have a, a bull sale that was uh, just two weeks ago, a yearling bull sale. So our deal is a little different anymore. They're, they're starting to have these yearling faturities really early, too early in my opinion. Um, I, I like to see yearlings, I don't really like to see these calves being entered, you know, much before the PBR finals. Uh, but they're, they've already probably had 10 yearling fraternities already, but we don't, we don't enter them, um, at least until the American heritage, which was two years, two, two years, two weeks ago. And, uh, but that's, uh, we, we buck them a lot at home. And like I said, we started them in March and we have so many at the ranch. I think we started with 200 and I don't know, around 200 head of yearling bulls. And so we cut them into two groups and we buck one set one day. And then the other set the next day, and then we would buck them at least once a week or once every two weeks. And then closer to the sale, we put it on them a little harder. And um, so yeah, so that's just kind of our program. We don't because we have so many numbers, we don't get to do as much dry work as I think they need, uh, which I think just that helps slow them down and develop their minds. And so ideally, you want to be able to run them through the shoot a lot and handle them and handle them by themselves and. I kind of, my, my personal program or my kind of contribution to the deal is I train cow horses also. And uh, so when we start our yearlings, I, that's how I work my colts or I work my horses. I'll, I'll get a set of, of yearling bulls in the arena and that kind of helps them get to where they, they work off horseback really well. And it lets them see the arena and I'll get a wad in there and work them a little bit and then I'll get another set. And so that's kind of what, how, that's my role in that. And then I video everything. So those are my, my only contributions to the actual starting process, but we just try to get them to where they really handle well and can kind of handle some pressure well, and then uh, just buck them and kind of they weed themselves out that way. Hey, before we get ahead of ourselves here, man, so let's start off from the beginning of this. There's a very slim few of females that are involved in the business. Can you take us how you started getting in this and kind of just take us on through a little bit of uh, Mesa Pate's uh, beginning in the Bucking Bullstock universe. Yeah, so I I grew up in Montana. Uh, my family ranches. Um, we've always ranched my you know generations back, and but my family's also pretty prominent in the rodeo world. Uh, and so I've been around it my whole life. And I high school rodeoed, and I was just always really drawn to the bucking bulls. And then when I was probably fifteen or sixteen, I really kind of got serious about my interest in them and my dad was a rodeo announcer and he went to one of Bob Tallman's schools when he first got started and and stayed good friends with Tallman for a long time and so when I got kind of serious about about getting into the the buck and bull side of things uh, we got a hold of Tallman and he sold me and a friend of my grandpa's actually partnered on the, this set of cows with me and so we uh, we bought this I think there's 10 cows 10 pair and uh that was that's how I got started and we've talked about this earlier but I he sent a three-year-old bull that had knocked his hip down um up there with with those cows for me to breed to and just said to you know breed to him and then buck him when he gets sound and sell him keep him buy him whatever whatever you want to do um just do that excuse me and then he uh he said we'd just kind of go from there so he sent this bull with these cows and I bred to him for a couple of years. And then when I moved to Texas, 
I went to college and um, I didn't rodeo my, my senior year because I wanted, I saved my money to buy this set of cows. And so I went to, I moved, I got a rodeo scholarship uh, at Panola College in Carthage, Texas. And I moved to Texas when I was, I wasn't even 18 yet. I was still 17. And I took my, I didn't take my cows. I have my cows up here, but I took some bulls down and I took that bull with me. And I uh, started bucking him down there. And every time I bucked him, he just got a little better. Well, he was pretty dang ranked. The first, the first time I bucked him, he was pretty special. And I think he was a coming five-year-old at this point. And so I bucked him a couple times locally. And then I got those videos in front of Cody Lambert. I had a classic bull entered at Pueblo and I asked him if I could bring this yellow bull and he let me and I, I bucked him there and he was really rank and I bucked him in the long round one more time. And then uh, he let me start putting him in the short rounds. And then he, that bull ended up being highway 12 and he was in the running for buck and bull of the year that year. So that was, that's how I got my start. Just really uh, kind of dumb luck. And I actually, how I got to Carthage is I, I bought a couple I think I bought three bulls from Terry Williams and one of them was a fraternity calf and uh, that calf just it just kind of worked out where I had highway 12 that was really um, really kind of you know a big rank bull and then I had this uh, 702 was his number and that was my first fraternity calf and he he won quite a bit that year too so I had a really good first year I'm like man this is easy it's uh it's really easy to rank, raise rank you know, short round bulls that they stick in the running for buck on bull of the year. I don't know why everybody says it's so hard, but I've learned since then that it's a little, a little harder than that. But, well, what's wrong? Yeah, so that's how I got my start. Um, just mostly, uh, I can attribute that to my parents always kind of having the right connections, and um, they've they've made sure a lot of really good things have happened in my life. Well, what draws you into bull riding, though? Like what? Because there's so many different caveats to rodeo. What what really draws you into it? What is it that like is the the kind of the heart of that that you love about it? You know, I think honestly, it's just it's the animals themselves. Um, we were PBR fans and rodeo fans. You know, my whole life, my dad rode bulls, rode bareback horses more uh, as he got older. And my mom's side of the family, they're mostly bulldoggers. My uncle's actually Rod Lyman, so I've been around rodeo my whole life and. Uh, I, I don't know. I got to high school rodeoing and I started kind of helping the stock contractor that put on our high school rodeos and got to be around them a lot, you know, kind of individually and, and see how cool animals they were. And I just kind of, I got hooked on them and uh, that, that hasn't changed. They're, they're some of the coolest animals. I've, they are probably the coolest animals I've ever been around there. They kind of pull you in a little bit. And once you're hooked, you're, you're hooked. So you got, you were making mention that you are, are kind of doing the reining horse thing now. Is that something that's taking more attention away from the bucking bull side or is that coinciding with it allowing you to kind of give attention to both of them? You know, I've always, I've always had horses. We, my dad, you know, he's a horse trainer. So we've always, I've always done everything horseback. I don't know how I kind of got into this rain cow horse deal, um, but it just fit. It fit with my style and and how I like to work cattle and so it's it's really been good you know it's I I probably am focused more on it right now but it works really well together it's uh sometimes the scheduling is a little tough but as far as I work our you know our cattle my horses get a lot of real world experience um which I think makes them better show horses so yes and no I think I probably 
just because I'm, I'm still pretty new in it and I'm having to, to work pretty hard at it at the moment. I wouldn't say that it's, it's taken over and it's my main focus, but it's definitely, um, what I'm, I'm not necessarily more interested in right now. I'm just having to work a little harder at it because it's, yeah. you know, it's a little newer, but it's, yeah. And it, and like I said, it works, it really works well together and how our, you know, these age events and these buck and bull deals and the age events and the horse deal are, are structured so similarly that I've been able to really, uh, kind of contribute a lot to developing our events on the buck and bull side, just from seeing how the cow horse industry really operates and, so I, I think it's really cool. I think it's a neat, it, it's been a really good fit as far as having to, I, I think it'd be harder, honestly, if I run burrows or did something uh, a little different because I couldn't, that's not something I could really work my horses on while I was at work, working these cattle. And that's what's made it really cool for me is that I'm always, I can kind of work, I can do both jobs at one time, it seems like. Yeah, kind of double dipping. Yeah, I'm kind of spoiled. <laughs> I got a lot of cattle to work. From, would you say, the 10 years that you've been in since Highway 12 came into your life, what are the genetics, or what, as far as back on the buck and bull side of it, it what are you looking for when you're trying to get, uh, you know, like this could be a superstar bull or this could be a good combination? What has the 10 years you know, shown you of what you need? Yeah, yeah I, I don't think anything as far as what's going to be a superstar necessarily has changed. Um, uh, it's just kind of gotten, there's more of them. You know, you used to see 10 years ago, uh, it took a lot of cattle, going through a lot of cattle to get a special one. And now it's a lot easier. You know, there's just a lot more of them. And, but it's still the same. I, I think the main thing, they have to have a lot of ability. They have to get off the ground. They have to really have a lot of kick and eye appeal, but they got to have heart. You know, we've got a lot of talented, we've gone through a lot of talented cattle that, just didn't have that they didn't have that toughness and the heart that the bulls like bruiser and highway 12 and you know cowboy casanova and which bruiser's kind of the epitome of that and you know i i get to be around that bull every day and it just blows me away because i know I've, I've seen him grow up and i know exactly how many trips he's had with a dummy with a cowboy rodeo trips pbr trips you know it's just it's insane how many times that bull's been bucked and he just gives it everything he's got every time. And not only that, but you know, there's a lot of bulls that their performance is hindered by something very small. You know, they can't buck because they're sore or something happens. And I've seen bulls like that, like Shepherd Hills tested and Bruiser are probably the toughest ones I have ever been around. And they've all performed or they, those two bulls have performed through some pretty big injuries. Um, and it's, it's that I think is what sets that kind of, of animal apart. And I don't, I don't care if it's a horse or a bull or what it is or a person, you know, that's heart and try is kind of what sets all of them apart. Jeez. Yeah. That, uh, you talk about these big injuries in the, and those bulls like shepherds, uh, held tested and bruiser. When is your limit of, I'm just not going to expose this bull anymore, or he needs some time off. Like, what are you looking at for that type of a thing or, you just, is it just knowing the cattle, I guess is what I'm saying of like, he'll be fine. Yeah, I think it's definitely, I'm probably, uh, I'm not going to buck one probably when a lot of people would, uh, when tested, when he got hurt, actually, this is probably the biggest fight HD and I've ever been in. Um, we were at Pueblo at a, a bull riding and 
the alley back to the bullpens is really, really long. And I had a, I had a colt with me. So I was, I was pushing bulls up during the bull riding and he was in the short round and, uh, he stayed back in his pen that the alley was really long, but that bull loved his job. He was, you know, when you let him out of his pen, he was going to take off running with his tail over his back towards the, you know, towards the smoke and the light show and the crowd. Like that's just how he was. And that day, um, I let him out of his pen and we've been at Denver. So they had the bull riding right before the rodeo at Denver. And then we went to Pueblo. So I let him out of his pen and he, I couldn't get him drove up the alley and there wasn't a cross gate one down this alley. And it took me like, you know, they're running back there hollering at me cause I hadn't got him up there fast enough. And it took me a while to get him pushed up there. And when I finally got him, got him to the arena, I was like, Hey, I don't think you should buck him. There's something wrong with him. And he's like, well, what do you, what do you, what's, you know, is he, is he crippled? And I'm like, no, he wouldn't, he would not drive up here. And he's like, oh, well, if I didn't buck everything that didn't drive towards the arena, I'd never get anything bucked. And I'm like, look, he's, there's something wrong with him. And, uh, ended up, he, he didn't buck very good that night. And then he was, his back, he, I don't know if he broke something in his back or something pretty major in his back happened. And, uh, it took, it took us all year to get him, get him sound. And I, I drove that bull, I don't know, hundreds of miles to vets. I got him injected. I've, I got pretty, pretty personal with that one. And, uh, so, and I, and I'm HD knows these bulls better than anybody I've ever, you know, he can read these bulls better than anybody. It just, I just happened to be the one that, that, uh, had to go get that bull. So he would have seen it too, had he been the one to do it, but it's just no one, like you said, knowing your, your cattle and, and being, just being aware. Um, and it's hard. It's really hard. You miss it a lot. But uh, I'm I'm definitely more conservative probably than a lot of people would be. Yeah. So what's the how long age wise can a bull still be active? Like what's the prime age of these bucking bulls? You know, anymore it seems like it's getting longer. Like smooth operator. Uh, see, smooth operator and the bull. And I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. I've I've been up for a long time. But the bull that won the the PRCA bull of the year this past year are brothers they're by the same bull and they're like i think they're 10 they were year year mates and they've won you know it's pretty cool because uh, smooth operator won the pbr bowl of the year and that bull won um won the prca bowl of the year and they are like 10 years old so that would have been you know bulls and when these rodeo bulls last a long time but they're not they're not but they, a lot of them that last that long are not bucking that hard and it seems like anymore um, we start them as yearlings. They're being competed with by the time they're long yearlings and, and they'll go until they're nine or 10 years old, pretty competitively. And I think that's just, uh, attributed to just the, the care that people are giving them and the nutrition. And, and there's a lot of, of kind of new things that has crossed over from the horse industry as far as, you know, uh, pulse machines and stuff like that. That's it, really helpful. But I think that the, the basis of why these cattle are lasting so long it's just the nutrition and and the breeding that's going into them hot and ready is who we're uh we're talking about here from harper <laughs> rodeo i gotta love the internet it's just uh it's beautiful <laughs> you know. i hope i hope i'm accurate on that because that'd be kind of embarrassing but i think i am i think i am it's all good pretty sure yeah what's what's fun about talking to you right now you're you you have knowledge as you're like mm, I don't know in your fifties, but you're in your twenties and you're kicking butt in this business. Where I mean, this is kind of a, like an early question, but how do 
how do you see yourself progressing in this business and, and what you're seeing? And, and obviously we're talking about longevity of stock lasting longer and there's a lot of marketing this. What, what do you see to come for yourself as you're involved? And, and you can stay in the PBR lane. You know, how do you see yourself growing with this business and you know, the stock becoming more popular? Yeah, and you know, uh, I I don't haul bulls a whole lot anymore. I have some fraternity calves. I really like the production side. I like the cows. I like breeding, and uh, but I I really got interested in kind of the industry. You know, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking. I feel like probably too much time just about how to to kind of better our our industry, especially on the aged event side with ABBI and. And I think that's kind of my role going forward is, of course, breeding and, and kind of developing these young bulls too. But um, I don't see myself hauling bulls. Um, you know, I, I don't see myself on TV and that, that kind of deal anymore. Uh, I'm really interested in how to keep our industry going forward. And, and that doesn't matter if it's the – and I think, I think bridging the gap between the ABBI and the PRCA is something that you know, I'm pretty passionate about. I think all of us should be. Our, our industry is, is big to us, but it's not compared to the whole big world. It's not that big. And so I think that's kind of where I'm at. I, I really like trying to give my input sometime unsolicited. I'm sure uh, Jay Doherty, our president, would tell you. But uh, just kind of help, trying to help the industry keep going forward is where I, I see myself the next, you know, hopefully 50 years. And it's such a cool industry. I think that it's set up to be so not only entertaining for everybody, you know, on the other side of it, but uh, this is our livelihood and, and, and how lucky are we that it is. How do you, how do you think, I feel like education and presentation to people that don't know anything about, you know, the Western way of life or rodeo, how important do you think that is to get in front of say inner city people or people that just don't have any idea about it? I think it's the most important, you know, we're in a day and age that you really never know what's going to happen. Um, what's going to get put on the internet, how that's going to be perceived, how it's going to be twisted. So I think that's, I, I don't, I, I, especially my generation, unfortunately, and no, that's not true. I think everybody kind of misses that, that we, we kind of know the reality of things, but not everybody was raised like us. You know, people see something and they want, they are going to see it how they want to see it. And it's up to us to educate in a way that leaves people with a positive, you know, a, a positive interaction with somebody from our industry. And, uh, you know, I think people really, we're lucky as far as the rough stock side a little bit. I mean, we deal with some, some stuff that with the, you know, PETA and, and things like that. But for the most part, um, I think it helps that every once in a while someone gets hooked pretty bad and the bull wins. And, but it's, you know, public perception is, is huge. And I think that uh, people are trying to do a really good job at making sure that, that that's, that's an important part of our industry. But I, I think we just have to keep moving forward and have to keep having those conversations and, and, and understanding people's ignorance too. And cause it's, you know, like I said, not everybody was raised like us and, and we got to figure out how to present our, our lifestyle in a way that, that can, people can understand and then, and then be a part of. Mesa, there is no doubt the bucking bull business is blessed to have you. Time to take a quick timeout. And when we return, we'll dive into bridging the bull riding gap between rodeo associations and her philosophy working with animals. Looking for tickets to the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo? StubHub is the official secondary and fan-to-fan site of the rodeo. 
Fans can buy and sell their tickets through a safe and secure online marketplace. Visit nfrexperience.com. Looking to rope in some news and features you can't find anywhere else? Then look no further than the series of blogs and vlogs at nfrexperience.com. You'll find customized content from experts in all things rodeo and Las Vegas. There's the NFR Insider and Stock Blog with Susan Canode, Hurley's Hotspot and Heart of the NFR with Brian Herbert, The Road to the NFR with Mr. Dale Brisby, NFR Experience with Patrick Everson, and the Junior World Finals with Jack Nallen. There's something for all rodeo fans. Check it out at the newly redesigned NFRExperience.com. This is the NFR. This is is Vegas. Hi, I'm Dusty Tuckness, nine-time PRSA Bullfighter of the Year, and this is NFR Extra. We are back with stock contractor Mesa Pate. Mesa's mom, Tammy Pate, founder of Art of the Cowgirl and a horse trainer in her own right, gave her a well-rounded education and instilled in her amazing work ethic. You use the word rank quite a bit. Can you expand on what that means to the business of bull riding or stock for for that matter? Yeah, I... And that's, you know, what's funny about words is that they can be, have such a different meaning for everybody. Because for me, rank is, uh, for buck and bulls, is the degree of difficulty in eye appeal. So when it, it, they're bucking hard and they're hard for somebody to ride, and they also look really, you know, flashy and it's fun to watch, that's rank to me. I see a lot of, you know, bulls that are hard to ride, and I wouldn't call them rank. I'd call them kind of trashy or you know, that doesn't look rank to me. It just doesn't look like very much fun. But you see some bulls or some horses that are doing some really crazy things um, that people that, ha- that people have to be as in- equally athletic and uh, rank, I guess, to, to get them rode. That, that to me, is what rank is. This, but it might not be that. That might not be what, how somebody else would describe it. But that's, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying is the, the eye appeal aspect of it to where you see something like, holy cow, like that – bull or bronc or whatever it is came out and did their job today as a stock contractor do you ever is it like a 50 50 feeling or are you more biased one way or the other if if somebody rides one of your bulls like are you wanting to see a cowboy get lawn darted every time or you just want to see a i don't care i don't care personally as long as they don't just dominate them i hate seeing that i hate i hate seeing the little bit of of life go out of one's eyes because they're just getting dominated but you know, when there's nothing cooler than seeing, you know, like somebody be 93, 94 on one. That's just, that's the coolest. It doesn't matter if it's a horse or a bull or yeah. whatever. That is, there's nothing cooler than that. Not seeing the egg get cracked in one. Right. Yeah, that sucks. That's, that's yeah. not a fun feeling. When, when you're really proud of one and some, you know, kid is just spurring a hole in them, you're like, it's, it's not a fun <laughs> feeling. All right. But when you enough. see both of them. Yeah. What uh, do you have one? Is there one, one ride or one out? that that stands out most in your career of being a stock contractor that did you remember uh of your of one of your end i'll say what's let me, let me rephrase right. that what's your favorite out from one of your bulls yeah uh one year at the pbr finals i had a, a bull called cowboy casanova and he was a kind of a pill like he was mm. really hard he was really bad in the shoot and he uh he was he was kind of tough to get out of there and stuff. And, and a, a guy rode him um, at the PBR finals and was like 91 or 90 up there, pretty high on him. And that was pretty cool. That that was uh, 
That was the second. I've had one the year before that. I think uh, they won the round on one of mine, and that was that was cool. But it wasn't it wasn't a bull that I was particularly attached to, and I had just gone so much going through so much with that cowboy Casanova that when uh, trying to think who who won the round on him, and I just can't. That's been a long time ago. But it was just a cool feeling that uh, I got to go yeah. up there and get a buckle for that one, and it was one that I had had worked pretty hard at. Yeah. So what? Ruben Barbosa's who got who won the round on. There we go. So what about God? God bless the internet again, or the good memory. Um, <laughs> what what is these bulls? You said that you guys are raising like you've got two hundred calves um, that you're raising right now. So what is the the bull that is when you said that the one that I'm particularly attached to, like what makes those bulls in your, I mean, go rise to the top. That cowboy that, you know, I had cowboy Casanova when I was on my own. Um, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. I can't believe I survived that stupid bull. <laughs> like He was terrible. He was so bad. Um, so bad in the shoot. And it was till the very last time I ever bucked him, but he, he tried really hard and, and it's, it's kind of a combination of things like highway 12, you know, he li- literally lived in my yard. Like I had a place, like I had him when I was on my own too. And, and he just, he hung out uh, where he wanted to and he sleep under my, my bedroom window. And so there's just kind of certain ones that you go through things with that, um, it just kind of you know, it, it doesn't always matter about their performance, but when they try that hard for you and, and just give, give it everything they've got and they kind of, you kind of earn their trust a little bit. That's a big one too, is when, when they mm-hmm. are kind of tougher ones like Cowboy Casanova was that, that kind of let you in a little, um, that's pretty cool. That makes them a little bit extra special. That bull was probably of ones that I've owned myself was probably the most, and he wasn't the most talented. He wasn't the most you know, he, he's produced a little bit. There's been some good fraternity calves by him and some good buck and bulls, but he wasn't a world beater, but he was just kind of a special one to me just because of all the stuff we'd gone through together. And uh, so just ones like that. And then Tested, he was pretty special to me just because same thing. Um, we just had a pretty cool little connection. Like I could go before the bull ridings, I would, I would rub like sore no more on his hawks and on his back and he'd let me in the back pins with him and I could do that before he bucked and like no he wouldn't let anybody else do that he'd go in there and he'd try to hook him but it was kind of that was kind of neat but there's been a few like that over the years that just kind of have a little something extra in their personality that makes you a little extra attached to them hey Mesa we had so this is we had Grounny on back in um during that 2019 NFR and one of the things he talked about was getting away, we've gotten away from this in the business where they used to do these things that would highlight the cat. PBR kind of does this, but they pretty much do it. But he, he was just on a bigger stage and where you go back to when he was with George Michael sports machine, well before you were born, things like this, but he was talking about these challenges and the way it would highlight this stuff and get a lot more exposure for people out outside of the business to, to look at that. Do you see that that's something that's possible today as you see, like for instance, like when Sage Kimsey comes over to, to PBR, you know, and, and I hear this, like, oh, he only, you know, the PRCA bulls aren't compared to like the PBR bulls. I mean, right. touch on a little bit how that makes the difference with PBR and PRCA and where can we go with this, maybe with more challenges or kind of like what PBR is doing right now in, in uh, Vegas at South Point where they're doing the, um, the teams aspect. I mean, are these things that can help out the business? 
Oh, I think absolutely. You know, I, I remember being a kid and, and, you know, knowing about those, those types of deals and they were such a big deal. And, and you kind of got a personal look at these animals and they were as big as superstars as these, as these riders were. And, and there's a few that are that way now. Um, you know, there's the bushwhackers and there's the, but I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Like I'm in the industry and it, it was hard for me to remember who won Buck and Bull of the year. And I don't remember who won it last year in the PRCA. You know, I just feel like, like you're saying kind of, and they're the same. They're, they are the same caliber bulls. I, I, we rodeo, we have a rodeo card and there's, there's just as good a bulls in the PRCA and there's just as good a hand in the PRCA. And I think absolutely highlighting that and, and just kind of bridging that gap. I, I don't really know why there is such a gap. I don't know how that kind of got started. Um, but I, I think, like I said, our industry's not big enough for, for a gap like that. And I think it, that's something that we should really, those in the industry that kind of have a say so should really address and, and make a bigger deal because there's a lot of people who I know a lot of people who don't really like watching the bull riding. They like the rodeo. They like the rodeo aspect, you know, the, the whole, the whole deal. They really, they like the lifestyle and then they feel like the PBRs are more of a sporting event and vice versa. You know, there's some people that don't really want to watch the calf rope and they don't, but I think that there is the opportunity to really benefit from each other. And I don't know how to do that, but I think something like you're saying, those, those matches and, and things like that are, are nothing but good. Well, I, man, I, this is my, kind of my platform and saying why I'm a fan of these things. But I think that, that going down the route of using the word athlete with both the bull and the human is something that um, we could do a better job of. And the more we do that, you start to understand, you know, what bull separates it from the next bull and why right. it's important. I, I'll give you a prime example. Um, so Thursday night of 2019 and far was probably the, the craziest bull riding I've seen being in 20 years part of the NFR when the excitement was going from, it was like, who could match who? And then right. Sage Kimsey went on that night. And that was amazing. I mean, you can't, you can't yeah. produce that. That was just all naturally, right? Like just how, yeah. but that came about because of the competition, because of, you know, little right coming up to the business and you're like, that kid's catching Sage and Sage's like, no, I'm getting my sixth championship. And yeah, it just showed man, the bulls they were riding, who they were, and God, if we could get that more often than not, get a lot more fans starting to pay attention a little more. Oh, for sure. That, that's the night he rode Bruiser. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah that was a pretty special night. I, like I, I said, you know, I'm, I, I know Bruiser, so it was a little, I can say for me it was pretty personal, but it was, that was the most electric I've ever felt. And I've been to, you know, the last 10 years of NFRs and PBR finals at the Thomas and Mac. And that was the most electricity I've ever felt in that building when Sage got on Bruiser. And uh, yeah, and it just goes to show that when you match, when you match those athletes like that, it doesn't matter if they're from the PBR or the PRCA or whatever, they could be from, from any, any walk of life. When you have those kinds of athletes going against each other, there is just something really special. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know what the, I mean, it's very interesting because the, the PBR, on the bull riding side there, the way that that is set up is like, that's pretty action packed. And you right. go to the P, the PRCA rodeo, which is action packed. It's more diverse, but I think that the, what, what I'm getting at is the generation that we live in now, everybody wants something hot, something right now, something, something that'll blow their mind away. And then they're going to, you know, that'll last for 10 seconds. But even right. like where you're at, I mean, you're out there in the Hills of, you know, Livingston, Montana and you know, when you're in the agriculture community, 
it takes time. I mean, good things take time. You got to, you know, cows have to have calves. You have to wait for the grass to grow to make hay. So I think that the comparison of like where we're at now on, you know, on the rodeo side is you still need those big, you know, big, huge moments, but good, you know, just like your reining horses. I mean, you could make a good run, but how many hours and hours and hours and days and years does it take to make a horse to its full potential? And the same thing as bucking bulls. So some good things just, they just still take time. So that's maybe teaching a little patience along with those good things. I don't think hurts a lot of these kids would be good for them. No. And and, and as far as from the, the public's perspective of that, that's not something that everybody knows either. And I think that if uh, if people kind of knew what goes into training a calf horse or, you know, training oh. a barrel horse, yeah. any of it, or developing these bulls and these horses, you know, the, the bucking horses, it takes a lot longer to get, you know, a, a horse like Craig at midnight or, you know, one of them, those type horses as it does these bucking bulls because they don't, they don't start hauling them until they're four years old or yeah. however, you know, it's, it's just such a, you're in so long before you see it any kind of a product or any light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, that's not, you know, there's, there's not going to be every rodeo fan or PBR fan out there that are going to appreciate that. But I feel like our industry is still based off the people who do. And I don't think that it, it would uh, do anything, but, but good to kind of highlight some of that stuff. Well, that I, I was laughing when you said Highway 12 was sleeping under your window. I was like, my God, that's that's an impressive guard dog right there. Like, right. Don't think you're gonna come sneaking yeah. into that house. Yeah, being an 18, 19 year old girl living by herself, it definitely made me feel a little better knowing I had yeah. my 1,900 pound yeah. guard animal out there. Jeez. When you talk, you said one thing with like uh, earlier on with ignorance, and I didn't take that, you know, same word as the way we say rank, that can be meant for different things. But I think that when you said ignorance, it was just the lack of education that like the general public would have for this stuff. So as we're sitting here talking about bulls and horses and everything, and you've got a a cute little 1900 pound highway 12 guard bull under your window, what does it take? Like if you had to just put just a general number, somebody comes up to you off the street and say, Hey, I want to get in the buck and bull business and I want one to go right now what kind of numbers financially should you have in your checking account to be able to purchase something like that? Something that's ready to go, you know, be successful. Uh, it just kind of depends on what Avenue, uh, if you're looking for an aged event calf, something that can go to the maturities, you know, our, our bull sale two weeks ago, uh, our high seller for half interest was I think 85,000. And, and half, uh, explain what half interest is really quick. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of stock contractors, and not so many in the in the bull or the the PRCA, but in the the bucking bull industry, uh, they offer a lot of half interest options. So, you know, we keep the bull, train it, haul it. You own half of it. You pay the fees, and then we split the winnings or however you want to. And a lot of people don't. They do it a little different. Everybody kind of does it a little different, but you can do it. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to have the truck and trailer. You can just kind of be part of the fun, the fun part of it. And then, uh, you know, some people buy full interest in them and they keep them with a trainer and, and the same as a horse, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of options to get into it, but, uh, when you're kind of, and that's what most, most people, um, do buy half interest in them. Um, it seems like that's kind of the, the most popular thing if they're not going to keep them themselves. And so for like a rodeo bull, you know, if you're wanting something that's going to be it's going to make the NFR, or the PPR finals. You're, you're looking at minimum 25,000, uh, probably closer to 50 or, or up. Um, 
and that's that's just kind of that's kind of how the industry is now and that's you know a few years ago you would have been paying probably 150,000 but you still would have been paying 35 40,000 for some of them kind of long round type bulls and the market's not as stout on that kind anymore you know you can get into something mm-hmm. that is just good enough to go for closer to 12 or 15 but for those good ones it's still you're going to have to spend something to get in on the the short round type I got to add this just cuz of just being a year interviewing all kinds of folks in this business, I actually want to do an episode about dollars and cents in rodeo because getting in this business, whether you're your side of the fence or even on the side of roping or whatever you're doing, we're talking quite a bit of money and right. it, it, it really, it, it doesn't get talked about enough, right? Like I think we always see the winnings and what happens to, to certain things, but like, getting into this thing is no joke. I mean, we're, you know, you're talking about half interest. I mean, we're, it sounds like we're talking about investing in stocks, no pun there, but I mean, it truly is right. Like in, in yeah. half interest, you don't even get to keep them under your, your window at night. Right. <laughs> but I'm, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's kind of like the, the ranching industry right now. It's really, if you're a young kid wanting to go even just not even, but if you're wanting to, to rope, or even be a bull rider, you know, anything, it's pretty daunting to look at when you get realistic about it, but how, what it's going to cost. And I think uh, that that's something I, I wish that people understood that, you know, this is mm-hmm. the only sport, the only, you know, the only whatever professional sport that, that we still pay an entry fee every, every week. And uh, that's, that's crazy. You know, it's crazy that they're, they're we're basically, our whole industry is a big jackpot all of it all there's very very little very few places that you're going to go where there's just a ton of added money that doesn't come from come from your pocket and that's that's uh i think that speaks for how passionate the people in this industry are about what we do because i don't know it's it'd be tough for somebody that doesn't really love what they do to keep paying and paying and paying and you know you can you can always get somewhere and be successful but gosh it's going to cost a lot to do it i think that's where the word lifestyle comes in Right. Yeah. You got to love it. This isn't something you're going to, I think my dad told me, um, the only way to be a millionaire in the horse industry is to start with 2 million. And that's, uh, I think pretty accurate in any avenue of the livestock industry. And that's not, you can be successful. You can be, you can make a living, but you, there's, you're not going to do it without working really, really hard. And that's going to be your life. You don't, you know, people who raise livestock and rodeo and, and do this stuff we don't get a lot of time to go to the lake and and do a lot of fun stuff but so you really have to love what you do and I do like I I feel very fortunate that I don't feel like I need a vacation I I get to go do I get to go work horses and and bucking bulls every day and uh, right now I'm up in the mountains and I just rope yearlings for about two hours this morning and that's that's pretty crazy that this is my life you know and every once in a while I get paid to do it yeah Tough, tough gig you got going on right now. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty rough. Touch on the, your philosophy on working with animals, because clearly this is where your heart is. Well, how do you go about that for the, the advocate of, you know, animal welfare and your love and all this? I mean, you clearly got a philosophy for this. Yeah, I, you know, animal welfare is kind of my passion, I would say. Um, you, you, can't, you can't treat this. I, and I, I see it a lot. I'm lucky to get kind of a very different perspective than some people do because I'm in, I'm kind of having my foot in a lot of different avenues of the industry. So I, you know, I go to these horse shows and I see these 
trainers that are great, you know, they're great at what they do, but these horses have just kind of turned into to, uh, uh, machines, you know. If one doesn't perform well, they kick it down to their non-pro or to their assistant trainer, and they never think about that horse again. And I don't have that luxury because so I don't have enough horses. Um, but you, then you see these guys that haul these bucking bulls around, and, and they're, like, going every weekend. They're investing in every single therapy you know gimmick that comes along because they just love them so much like they just literally and and you see horse people that do too or any any part of the industry but i i hate seeing you know animals turn into just machines for people and uh, i think that's kind of what what puts the really great stockmen above the rest and and that's what also gives a really positive um you know, from the outside looking in, what is really positive about our industry is there's so many people out there now that, that love it so much. And I, I think, you, like I said before, you can have those conversations with the people that don't know any better, um, but you kind of have to lead by example, too. You have to really, really be proactive in showing how much we love these animals. And I think uh, our industry is getting better and better at that. I'm really proud of, of where not only the rodeo, but the ranching industry um, is going because I feel like right now there's more people that truly love their animals than any time I can remember. And I think that that really is going to shine through the public perception of, of our industry. Yeah. That's, you know, kind of that whole thing too, is people always talk about activists in a negative way, but there's no bigger activist for, I mean, especially for a stock contractor for those animals than the person that is, has their entire life invested in them. So that's, you know, and I think that you, you've hit a lot of very solid points. And, and the thing is just, if you could somehow expand on that to where people, it's like, Hey, we love these animals. Like we have our entire, I mean, something happens to these animals and you know, your horses, somebody buys a horse and, Oh, I've got a horse. Well, you got to feed it. You got to take it to the shore. You got to take it to the vet. You, you have all these additional costs in it other than just your upfront costs that, I mean, people like NV said, man, if we could get the dollars and cents. So you saw what a stock contractor had to pay to get, you know, 200 calves a year. <laughs> Jeez. I'm afraid that nobody would ever get back in the industry if we put that dollar amount <laughs> out there. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, it's you. Like I said, you have to love it, and you have to you have to love them. And not only are ranchers and cowboys and stock contractors the best animal activists, but you know, ranchers in general are the biggest environmentalists. I know. You know, I, oh. I don't. We you can't make a living unless you're taking care of of the land. And uh, I, I don't think that's any different. We can't make a living unless we're taking care of our animals. It just, it, you see some people come into it that don't. You see the people that, that are, you know, in it for the wrong reasons. And luckily, this, is, this sport has gotten so tough that those people usually fade out pretty quickly. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes they make the biggest splash as far as negativity goes, but they, like I said, they don't stay around very long because an animal's not going to work for you if you're not taking care of it. You know, I don't feel like these these bulls, very few of them have much personal attachment to us. Um, I think some of them learn to trust you a lot more than others, but they don't, they're not, they're not pets. They're not, they don't love us, but they do have some concept of being taken care of and be, and, and it just is natural with me. If they feel good, they're going to perform good. Mm-hmm. And that's the pretty basic I feel like and it's some, something missed by some people but not very many that stay successful in this industry whether it's 
roping or rough stock side of it or anything. It it you have to you have to be that respectful of these animals and and they're going to pay you back tenfold, you know. And I think that's what makes working with animals so special. They they will kind of bring out the best and worst in you, and they will do it in a hurry. That's a no kidding, especially when it comes to working cattle. You want to feel like a fool. Just don't be thinking about what you're doing, and they'll they'll show that to you. Oh yeah, for sure. Mesa, this is fantastic. Once again, this is the, always a concept of learning on this show, and for myself who doesn't live the lifestyle. There's always walking away with some more information that just empowers what we're doing here on NFR Extra. And we really thank, uh, really thank you coming on. This is, uh, well, I appreciate you guys for asking the, the tough and questions that need to be asked too. It's awesome. Well, I'd give that up to the team, right? When we think of things and but the team you're sitting here talking, there's a bunch of people behind us, a president, Pat Christensen's a big rodeo fan and he's always got questions and, Bo Gardner, who was the one who actually said, hey, you should look at Mesa Pate coming on the show. And yeah, this is just how we do this. I, it just keeps expanding on the rodeo business and the lifestyle and, and understanding it more. That's awesome. Steve, Brylin, you got anything else for uh, Mesa? I just, man, it's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely, Mesa. Appreciate it and enjoy your time in Montana and have fun roping yearlings with your family. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you guys again for having me. We want to thank Brittany Tanazi and Mesa Pate for joining us on NFR Extra and sharing their stories. And stay tuned for episode 58 when five-time world champ Luke Branquino visits NFR Extra for our Rodeo is Life segment. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit NFRExperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year.